0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. You're listening to the Beeson Podcast, and this is the day Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. and I have the privilege of introducing to you one of the great preachers of our time. And today, it's Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. Sinclair Ferguson is the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. He's an amazing scholar as well as a pastor and a tremendous preacher of God's Word, one of the great voices of the pulpit in our time today. Uh, Several years ago, we were privileged to have Dr. Sinclair Ferguson here at Beeson Divinity School, and he preached the sermon we're going to listen to today. Dr. Smith, tell us about it.
2: This is, Dean George, uh, more than the sermon. It's really a a message in which Sinclair Ferguson turns the ink of the sermon, really, into the blood uh, of life, the blood of the message, treating the ascension opening up with a very interesting question he asked the question why after 58 years uh, has it taken me this long to be asked specifically to preach on the ascension and so he treats the ascension i think it's a um, homiletical laboratory experience in which he literally uh, picks the text apart ephesians 115 through 23 and gives us the structure of the ascension around three verbs, really. Jesus is exalted in glorious majesty. Uh, Jesus is exalt- exalted as Lord of history. And then Jesus is guardian of his amazing destiny. Those those beautiful words, uh, the suffixes, majesty, history, destiny, uh, and that question of what does it mean to live the Christian life on earth while we are l- literally sitting and living in the heavenlies and uh, waging in spiritual warfare. And so uh, this is For him, the forgotten work of Jesus Christ, the past work of Christ is finished. The future work of Christ is finished. But the idea of the uh, ascension—that we are ascended with Christ because he has ascended, and that he's coming back again—he closes this prayer on a very poignant note. Though we live upon the earth in our true life, yet uh, the extension of this life is in heaven for Jesus who is being magnified in our worship on earth, is coming back again to receive those who believe in him. So this is just a very powerful message on the ascension of Christ and that we share in his life by living in the heavenlies while we're still on earth.
1: It's a message that's deeply doctrinal, theological, and yet it has existential pastoral implications that we can't avoid. I should say that uh, Dr. Ferguson preached this sermon here at Beeson during the series that we had a couple of years ago on the Nicene Creed. Mm-hmm. He ascended into heaven. Mm-hmm. He was talking out of that text, but from the, the book of Ephesians. So let's listen now to our friend Dr. Sinclair Ferguson as he preaches on the
0: ascension of Jesus Christ. Well, it's a wonderful privilege to be with you today and to be able to share in the service and have a uh, part in the ministry of God's Word that's exercised here both in education and in adoration in this room in worship. And I'm particularly grateful as well as touched by the kindly introduction. Um, I'd never thought of the James Bond connection exactly, but um, this may explain why The uh, number I use in order to use one of the machines in our office building is 0007. (laughs) And uh, probably it is also a parable of uh, why I love the seminary, but I love the church more than the seminary, because I like my theology shaken and not stirred. Now we are to think together today about this marvelous theme, uh, a volume-length theme, really, of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the text that has been given to me by the power, the anonymous powers that be in the Beeson Divinity School has been Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And I think you'll find it helpful as I call your attention to these words, to have the verses open before you. I recognize that uh, the invitation of a Presbyterian to preach in chapel today apparently caused the uh, PCA presbytery to call a presbytery meeting today so that none of the PCA students would hear an ARP minister preach today, and they have even kidnapped Dean George, I believe, um, and so I feel very lonely here in the pulpit today, but uh, undaunted, I uh, am privileged to be able to expound this passage to you. I would be interested to know what questions you might ask your learned professors in your next class this afternoon after the reading of these verses. If you're going to a New Testament class, I've no doubt you might say, to your professor, well, what's your take on Paul saying that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all? Or if you're going to a homiletics class, uh, you're probably shrewd enough to say, sir, why is it that you constantly tell us we are never to use long, compound, complex sentences, particularly in prayer? When here, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul uses for the second time, interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 1, a long, compound, complex sentence. Those are the kinds of questions that seminary students love to put to their professors, if my experience is anything to go by. But uh, I'm not here as a seminary professor, I'm here as a country pastor. After all, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina, and my questions of this passage actually are somewhat different. There are three of them. The first is this. Why is it, after 38 years as an ordained gospel minister and endless conferences, this is the first time in my entire ministry I've ever been specifically asked to preach on the Ascension. My second question is this. Why is it, having never been asked to preach on the Ascension, that I have never heard anybody in a prayer meeting pray like the Apostle Paul prays here? As one of my close friends has said, prayer meetings today are often more like organ recitals than apostolic pleadings. And my third question is this. Can there be a connection between never being invited to preach on the ascension of Jesus Christ from this passage, and never hearing anyone pray like this can there be a connection between these two things? And I hope that as we think a little about these verses, it will be borne in upon us that the Apostle Paul's ability to come to God with such a grand petition is so deeply embedded in his magnificent sense of the exaltation in his ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, as he speaks about this, he is speaking, at least to us in the 21st century, about what is really the forgotten work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit used to be spoken of frequently as the forgotten person of the Trinity, didn't he? But we might equally say about the ascension of our Lord that this is the forgotten element in the work of Jesus Christ. We are accustomed to thinking of his past work, and indeed, sometimes refer to that as his finished work. And some in particular are particularly interested in his future work and he's coming again in glory. But we give all too little place, I think, to his present work as the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. We look to him for the past and we look to him for the future, for the forgiveness of our sins, and for the final consummation of all things. But we are certainly living in a time when our evangelical subculture looks within and downwards rather than without and upwards for what it means to live the Christian life in the present day. And it's certainly true if the Apostle Paul and indeed the whole of the New Testament is anything to go by, that in actual fact our individual Christian lives, the wonder of the church of Jesus Christ in the present age, and the whole business of reaching the world that is lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are all entirely dependent on this one thing, that the crucified and resurrected one is now ascended at the right hand of the Father. And it's because the Apostle Paul has a grasp of this, that he is praying for these Ephesians and for others, and in a sense for all who read this letter that the eyes of our understanding will be opened to see the glory of this on the one hand, and the implications of this on the other hand for our living of the Christian life. And it's to this that Paul eventually comes, doesn't he, here in verses 20 through 23. He's speaking about the marvel of God's power for us, The power that is, verse 19, towards us who believe. Isn't that an interesting preposition, incidentally? The power that is towards us who believe. In that, this is the power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and interestingly, the power that he worked in Christ. When following his resurrection, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, which of course is exactly where Paul has already said the Christian life is lived. We have every spiritual blessing, he said in chapter 1, in the heavenly places, and it's also incidentally the place where the Christian warfare is fought, because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so you see he's saying, in a sense, in the middle of the bookends of this marvelous exposition of God's grace in the church, that the blessings are ours in the heavenly places, and the battle is ours in the heavenly places, because our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into those heavenly places, and he draws us with him in his train. Now, it would be tempting to expound an entire volume of theology out of these verses, but let me limit myself to essentially looking at the emphasis Paul makes in the three great verbal statements that he gives to us in verses 20 through 23. Number one, he says in verse 20 that God has seated Jesus at his right hand. Jesus has been exalted in glorious majesty. Second, so that you know where we're going, in verse 22, that Jesus has had everything put under his feet. He is exalted, and he is enthroned above all things as the Lord of history then again in verse 22 and into verse 23, God has made him head over all things for the church. The exalted and enthroned Lord Jesus Christ is also the guardian of his people. It's an astonishing statement, one of Paul's most astonishing statements of all, that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made head over all things. For what reason? for his ministry to the church. And so this is a magnificent expose of the marvels of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ as God has raised him and seated him at his right hand. So let's think briefly about these three things. First of all, in verses 20 to 21, that our Lord Jesus has been exalted in glorious majesty of course, the apostles witnessed this. At least eleven of them were left to witness this, weren't they? When the Lord Jesus raised his hands in his dominical blessing, and then the cloud from heaven, presumably we are meant to understand that that is the cloud that came down upon him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And that's the same cloud that filled the place when Solomon's temple was dedicated, and that this is the very Shekinah glory of God bearing witness to his identity as he is raised up and leaves the earth and enters into the glory cloud of God, as it were, as the antechamber of the final full manifestation of that glory into which he is to bring resurrected humanity for the very first time. And of course, it's there to underscore to us that the humanity of the Lord Jesus is not something that he took merely as an instrument so that for 33 years, in and through it, he could work our salvation. But as the church has so often emphasized, although not so often proclaimed, he has taken that humanity into union, personal union with himself, in a manner in which that humanity is not only inseparably united, but permanently united. As Rabbi Duncan, of whom few of you have probably heard, although some of you may have read, great Scottish professor of Hebrew in the glory days of New College, Edinburgh, once said to his students, what is happening here is that the dust of the earth is being raised to the throne of glory. This is not Jesus, as it were, in some kind of NASA booster rocket, dropping off his humanity. The sheer startling wonder of this is that he is taking that humanity in which he has come and suffered and died and raised, he is taking that humanity back into the presence of the Heavenly Father so that those who are united to him in and through that humanity might know him as the anchor within the veil that guarantees that, yes, our humanity one day resurrected and transformed will be fit for and brought into the presence of the glory of God. And of course, what's being fulfilled here is the words of the 110th Psalm, isn't it? The Lord, that Psalm that so bamboozled the exegetes in Jesus' time, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until your enemies have become a stool for your feet. And so he is greeted with acclamation. Isn't that what Revelation 4 and 5 are about? That whole drama of the scroll that cannot be broken open and looked into, that the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered is able to take, and he turns out to be the lamb standing as though he had been slain. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus entering into the presence of God, his heavenly Father, and all heaven waiting to see if anyone can open this scroll. And John, who is a spectator for the first time, actually becomes a participant in the event. He begins to weep within his own vision because no one is found worthy. And then this burst of wondrous praise and adoration to the Lord Jesus Christ, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive all honor and majesty and dominion and, and might. This is something the early fathers grasped, didn't they? Surreal to them, those Cappadocian fathers, those wonderful men that you can silence the ordinary Christian, by simply saying, have you ever read the Cappadocian Fathers? People wonder if that's something they sell at Starbucks, isn't it? (laughs) And these Gregories, with the way in which they played with the words of the 24th Psalm, you remember how it ends as the, the angels of heaven look over, as it were, the ramparts, of God's city, and they see Him returning, and His hands still bear the marks of His crucifixion, and they cry out, Who is this who is coming? who is the King of glory? And the cry goes back, as it were, from the accompanying angelic host in the glory cloud as Jesus comes into the presence of Father. This is the Lord who is strong and mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. Open the gates and let the King of glory in. And the angels who vied for the opportunity, doubtless, to visit him after his anguish in Gethsemane, and were waiting in their legions to deliver him from Calvary, mystified by what the Father might be doing, as it were, of their opportunity to cheer Jesus home and to see him exalted at the right hand of the heavenly Father. Now, do you know what's even more astonishing? It's this. If ever there was a proof for the deity of Jesus in the New Testament, this is it. This is not only an action of the Father. This is His response to the request of His Son. Do you remember? Glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was made. You see a sportsman, don't you? He's had some triumph and and he immediately or she immediately after the triumph goes and embraces the coach or the family. Why do they do that? Because these are the ones who have suffered and watched and persevered and hoped and waited, and they embrace. And this is what's happening. As Jesus is returning, there is the embrace and acclamation of heaven to which our worship today is but a real yet faint echo, because the Heavenly Father has answered his prayer, and Jesus has been exalted in glorious majesty. And you notice that this this exaltation is ultimate. He is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And it's not only ultimate— It's permanent. Isn't that something? Every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So he is enthroned in a glorious majesty. That's why you remember the author of Hebrews says, we don't see everything under his feet yet but we see Jesus. Now, my dear friends, that is our greatest need. We have many needs. We have many practical needs. We have many needs for practical instruction, but the greatest need of all we have is to see Jesus. And the greatest problem we have in the church is that he is so little seen. I wonder if you've ever had the experience I've had of, of sitting under a ministry through one of the Gospels. And the hermeneutical key in this ministry has been what I call the Find Waldo hermeneutic. Some of you remember the little fellow with the funny cap in these, I suppose they were supposed to be children's books, but it was adults who got most of the fun. And The whole business was to find Waldo in a picture, and it was sometimes very difficult. That's the way we sometimes preach. Where are you in this gospel story? The answer to that question is, you are nowhere in that gospel story. It's about Jesus, you see. And so we need this baptism of clear seeing for which the apostle is praying. He is enthroned in a glorious majesty. Second... He is exalted as the Lord of all history. All things are put under his feet. Now, this needs a series to expound because this is the apex of a whole biblical theology. In a sense, we could say this is the apex of biblical theology. Because this is what man was made for. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, isn't that the truth? made as God's image, as God's miniature, to have dominion over the creation that God had given to him. And God gives him a little start, as a father would do, by giving him a garden and tells him to expand the garden into the whole place. This is his task, to have dominion over all things, and he loses that dominion. He becomes himself a servant he is meant to till the soil, and he actually becomes a slave of the soil and returns to the dust. And the whole Bible story is really an answer to the question, how is that dominion going to be restored? And we've got little hints of it right the way throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, and perhaps nowhere more evidently than in the great promise that when God sends His man That man will restore dominion. That's what the vision of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is all about, and presumably why Jesus used that title for himself so exclusively. But it's also what the 8th Psalm is also about, isn't it? You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and Hebrews says, of course, we see that's fulfilled only in Jesus. When he says, All authority, all dominion in heaven just before his ascension. It's as though he's saying, Let me give you the word that will interpret the event. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Therefore, go into all the world, bring the gospel to all the nations. I wonder if you've ever noticed the words that precede that. It's that the apostles went with Jesus. There were 11 of them left. And then these amazing words, I find these words absolutely staggering. Some doubted. Now, I think some must always be more than two. You don't say some when you mean two. So we've lost one, And now we're left with, apparently only at maximum, eight who really seem to have taken on board what he's saying. Now the others get the action soon enough, no doubt. So easy for us, isn't it? And I'm guilty of it myself. We beat down on the church that we've had 2,000 years and we still haven't fulfilled this. That's not the real wonder. The real wonder is that with 11 some of whom doubted, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth, and our Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated that all authority really is His. Now, how did they come to know that? It's just one thing for Jesus to say that. You know, anyone can lift up his hands and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and then disappear in a cloud. How do they know that he has been exalted at the right hand of God? Well, of course, the answer to that is the day of Pentecost. I don't know what Jesus taught Simon Peter in those seminars he had between the resurrection and the ascension, but he sure taught him some amazing things, because on the day of Pentecost, have you ever noticed this? On the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, Peter says, do you want to understand what this means? Listen. Listen. And referring back to what Jesus had said in John chapter 14, I am going to go to my Father in glory, and when I go there, I'm going to ask him for the Holy Spirit, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to you to empower you. He is a witness, and you will be witnesses because you've been with me from the beginning. And on the day of Pentecost, I think in the most ignored statement in that whole sermon, Peter says this, that what has happened here is that the Son has gone to His Father, has been exalted, and then He said, and what father ever resists this? Father, You promised the nations for My inheritance. Send the Spirit to the nations. And so our Lord Jesus is enthroned in majesty. He's made Lord of all history as He works out His sovereign purposes. And that means that the ascension of the Lord Jesus is the absolute foundation of world mission. And it's impossible without Him being enthroned and sending His Holy Spirit. And we must hurry on to the third thing. He's enthroned in glorious majesty He's made the Lord of all history, and so sweetly he is the guardian of his people's destiny. Aren't these amazing words? I can't remember when I first came across them, but they sure were words with a wow factor I remember when I was a teenager, that he has made him head over all things for the church. The church is the only safe place to be in the universe. That's what that's saying. The church is the only user-friendly sphere in the universe, because that's the sphere in which those gather for whom everything works together for good, because they've been called according to His purpose. But this, if we can borrow from the Reformers as well as the Cappadocian fathers this morning, This is where the Reformers hit the nail on the head, didn't they, by emphasizing that the threefold office of the Lord Jesus does not come to a conclusion at his crucifixion. He is king and prophet and priest forever. As the shorter catechism says, he subdues all his and our enemies. He's not only reigning in some general cosmic sense, although that's true, but where sin abounded in me, in us, that's the very sphere in which King Jesus reigns in grace. Where sin reigned unto death, the grace of our ascended Lord Jesus Christ reigns unto life. He breaks the power of canceled sin, or some of the modern hymn books, reigning sin, and sets the prisoner free. If you're a Christian at all, you're a Christian today. If you know something of being set free from the dominion of sin, even while you still struggle against it, it's because Jesus is ascended and He reigns. And he's reigning for you. Can that really be true? That he still has the same heart, the same humanity to reign over all that causes me grief and pain and sorrow and loss just as he did in the days of the gospel narrative, reign over darkness and sin and death and hell and Satan. Yes, it is true. And he's also still the prophet. Actually, Paul gives us a little illustration of this in the second chapter. He's been expounding the work of Jesus Christ and how he has reconciled us both, that's Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, Ephesians 2.16, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then he makes this amazing statement. And he came and preached peace to you. Isn't that interesting? Who came and preached? Which of the apostles came and preached? He's not talking about the apostles coming and preaching, although it may have been the apostles preaching he's talking about. He came and preached. My dear friends, if you're going into the ministry of the gospel as a preacher of the gospel, this is something that will help you so much. It will help you understand all the miseries you may go through as a preacher as the Lord humbles you under your own preaching that the only real preacher in the church of God is the Lord Jesus. He came, and he preached peace. Some of, That's how some of you became a Christian. You were brought up in church-going homes, and you heard a multitude of sermons, but you never heard Jesus preaching. And then one day, You heard Jesus preaching right into your heart, and you were one of those sheep who recognized His voice because He seemed to call you by name as there was no one else in the room. That's why preaching works. That's why preaching shouldn't be short. Not when Jesus is doing the preaching. And then the thing with which we are most familiar He is exalted as our guardian, as our great high priest. That's why we can't be condemned, because Christ has died, Christ has raised. Christ is at the right hand of God, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And the New Testament gives us at least two transcripts, doesn't it, of that intercession? The transcript of how he intercedes for us when we stumble and fall. Satan has desired to have you, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are turned, strengthen the brethren. What a Savior to have. And that other transcript in John 17, Father, This is the one who's going into the Garden of Gethsemane to say, Father, not my will, but your will be done. But in John 17, he says, Father, grant me my will that they may be with me where I am to behold your glory, the glory you gave to me in your love for me from before the creation of the world. He is enthroned, In a glorious majesty, he is the Lord of all history. He is the guardian of his people's destiny. And when you see him there, large petitions with you bring. You are coming to a king. I guess we're all in the position of Elisha's little servant boy, really, aren't we? Remember when the king comes? And surrounds the village where they are, and the little boy goes out, he goes out to get the goes out to McDonald's to get something for the master's breakfast. And as he goes out, he sees the hills are just full of these chariots and horsemen of the enemy, and he runs back, spills the coffee, the egg McMuffin sandwich all over the place. He bursts into the prophet's chamber. Oh, master, he says, we're done. We can't go on any longer. This is just too much for me. And Elisha takes his servant boy out, puts his hand on his shoulders. That's not thats not in any textual emendation. That's purely Ferguson and his imagination. He puts his hand on his shoulders. This is me imagining I'm Elisha. And he begins to pray. What does he pray? Oh, God, this is terrible. Oh, God, open the young man's eyes. And the young man's eyes are opened, and he sees that those who are for him far more than those who are against him. Boy, that makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, doesn't it? The ascension of the Lord Jesus, his high exaltation is not only for world mission. It's for me when I'm in the depths of deepest depression and oppression. I look up and I see him there. And I know Jesus reigns. And Jesus' kingdom will last forever that will take you a long way in the Christian life. By God's grace, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of this gospel truth, that though we live upon the earth, our true life is hidden with Christ in God in heaven. We pray that we may lift our eyes to Christ, who is ascended and glorified, and see him magnified by the worship of heaven, and ourselves be so drawn into that worship that we may live here upon the earth as those who belong to heaven, whose citizenship is in heaven, whose Savior is in heaven, and who know that the reigning Lord Jesus Christ will not leave heaven and come again to earth unless he brings those who believe in him with him. Strengthen us by this truth, O Lord, and grant the opening of our eyes to Christ, that our eyes may be the wider open to the world in which we live. We pray this in his name.